Welcome to the Bring Your Lunch Pail Sports Podcast. <gasps> Presented by Luke's Pizzas. So don't do that for A. Thank you for the advice. Featuring Lucas Clark and Nigel Romaine. Tell me more about these lizard overlords. Now introducing your host, Tanner Retz. All right, welcome back for episode 13 of the podcast. Boys, we're all reunited again. It's the three of us once again. That's good news. And you guys have a big volleyball tournament coming up. So uh, why don't you give the uh, the listeners a little take of what this bloodbath is going to be. Well, Tan, uh, it's been a long, long, grueling summer season. Uh, but the uh, team hit it from the back row. Uh, has has been pretty successful. We, we uh, managed to secure the one seed for uh, for our Tuesday night league. Uh, Luke, what was our record again? 40 something. 48 and 7. There's 48 and 7. Five games a night, 11 weeks, 55 games. I think we dropped seven on the entire year. Yeah, and a couple of those were when we were down to four players and there was a mud night. That 4v6. <laughs> yeah, for, 4v6, for, yeah. yeah. And uh, there was a mud, mud ball night that we had that was not not our, our best day, but uh, yeah. So we've got our we've got our annual tournament coming up, and a uh, couple of I mean a couple of bad news things that we've uh, we've picked up we picked up a couple of uh, additional players over the over the summer, including Tan has helped out a bit. Tan's Tan's uh, gonna not be able to make it. We'll talk about that more later in the pod. And then, uh, and then Max, who is uh, another friend, who has a background in volleyball, played some high school volleyball. He's a real ringer for this yeah, tournament. Yeah, exactly. Real ringer for the tournament. Pretty talented, tall guy. Uh, he just broke his hand this weekend. But we've got our core. Whoa, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, he broke yeah. his hand playing basketball last weekend. And so, so he's out. So we're, we're going with the, the same crew we had last year. Which uh, the last couple of years yeah. we've taken third place in this tournament. Uh, controversial uh, situations to say the least. To say the least, uh, both years where I got uh, I I got called on a BS call two years ago, and uh, Maddie got called on one last year with pretty much the game on the line on both of them, and uh, so excited to get our redemption tour. Hope hoping to uh, put up a good showing. Fun day. So it's a long day of volleyball. You start at eight thirty in the morning, and uh, play pretty much all day long. If you're if you're making it near the finals, like we hope to be. So, um, yeah. If any of you guys are, if you, we, you happen to catch us before Sunday, you're welcome to come out and join. It's a fun day. Watch some volleyball, hang out, drink some sodas, and uh, eat some food, and and uh, chill with the boys. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be posted. <laughs> I was going to say I don't have. <laughs> I don't have the quick editing skills that have this ready by Especially because uh, I was going to say the real challenge of this volleyball tournament is going to be that we're all going to a wedding on Saturday. Doesn't help. uh, We'll be playing hungover on Sunday morning. But but that's not unusual, realistically. So yeah, I've been First training. First couple games, you, you're sweating out the the uh, bad decisions from the night before. Yeah, I've been pretty consistent about training by drinking a bunch the night before a big athletic event for 
many years now, so yeah. I guess a wedding will be my final boss to defeat. But honestly, any, vo- any volleyball tournament wouldn't be complete without being completely sauced the night before. Yeah, pretty much every year in Seaside, we do the same thing. Have a Sunday tur- Sunday tournament where you got to be there at the crack of eight o'clock, and you know you drink twelve hours the day before. So uh, we've been training for this a long time, and uh, I think it's time for. Time for us to get the dub this year. I yeah. feel like this is your year because you've been training this for so long. These these endless nights of drinking and just like performing the next day. I think you guys are ready for this challenge. You know, I think my real worry right now is that, as we would mentioned before, we had a dominant regular season this year. Years past, there's been a lot better competition in our league. We don't normally have a 90% win percentage, but... Talent was down this year because, like, for for reference to the way the tournament goes, is that we play Tuesday nights. There's a Tuesday night league, a Wednesday night league, and a Thursday night league, and each one has about 10 10 to 12 teams on it. So then they all come together in the tournament. And our night this year was just not really filled with much talent. So, like, you show up on tournament day, and all of a sudden you're playing, I would presume, much better talent. We haven't really been challenged that much. I've been tested in and out, that's for sure. Yeah, we're we're playing we're playing a high level of volleyball, but you know you still want to play against the best and beat the best. Yeah, you know, week in and week out. That way you're battle tested and ready for the tournament. So, like, we come at in at a little bit of a disadvantage in that regard, but we still got the one seed. We should have a pretty easy path towards at least you know the quarterfinals. Yeah, um, but then talent's just got to take over. <laughs> so, what you're saying is that the Thursday night league and the Tuesday night league basically are both in this tournament, then and yeah. Wednesday, and Wednesday night. night and Wednesday yeah. night. So you haven't seen a lot of these people that you're actually going to be facing, correct? Yeah, no. basically, yeah. We play in a twelve. Our night has twelve teams. We play the same eleven other teams, you know, on a rotating basis, and then come tournament time, yeah, there's roughly thirty six teams in total. So, two-thirds of the field is you've never played before. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of fresh faces. And years past, we haven't had... I mean, honestly, years past, we I think we've lost to the same team in the semifinals we've both years. years. So, yeah. we are we are familiar with their game. We'll see if we can make it a three-peat, at least in the sense of playing the same team. I'd love to beat them for a chance to go to the championship. Or play them in the championship. Same. same. I, would, uh, I would love a chance of redemption against that team just... Because of the uh, bad blood. so Yeah, Nigel mentioned that earlier. And I won't get into the nitty-gritty of the bad call. But for anybody who's played any sport in general, pickup or otherwise, you played a 25. I think it was 24 to 23. And they tried to call a foul or an improper hit on us on game point. Mm. And they just wanted, and they'd be like, we win, that's game. We did not let that happen, but we ended up redoing the point and then won that point and then lost the next two and lost 26-24. But still, like, who call who calls a foul on game point? It's like, this is how you know these guys are just jabronis and they're asking for an ass whooping this time through. Yeah. And hopefully we're the ones that give it to them. Yeah, I would love to see it. I can't believe you guys' ringer is out though. I didn't know, yeah. I didn't know about that recent news of yeah. Matt. That's, that's been the one challenge for our team is that I think we're a talented enough team. Nigel, I guess, is the tallest person on the team. Yeah, depending he is. on who you ask. But I'd say I'm a close. <laughs> At sec- least demeanor wise, I'm a close second tallest person. And I don't know if you know much about volleyball, if you're our listeners, but 
having a team completely comprised of people under six feet poses challenges in certain situations. So we're going to miss Max because he's about 6'4". Helpful piece. Just like an ace sport, you got to have some beef on the front line, and we're uh, we're lacking it a little bit. So, yeah. But like I said, we, we've gotten there. We've gotten to the semifinals two years in a row without Max, and so this is, this is going to be the year that we check, check that game off of our list and get to the final, and then hopefully we win in the final. Well, the listeners will definitely have to check in with the next episode to see if you guys came out victorious or just a bunch of jabroni losers again. Yeah, hopefully we, we will be the champions. What do you get for winning? Is it just a t-shirt? Do you, uh, I, mean, I don't Do you even yeah. get a t-shirt? <laughs> yeah, I, don't I hope there's a t-shirt. I don't know, I don't pride? Know what you get. Yeah, pride is all I want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm pride. Yeah, the satisfaction that you conquered your opponent, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And Nigel, you and I, uh, we went out and saw the ponies, uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before with Michael Tote. Was, oh, yeah. That was a good time. Nigel, uh, his horse, his go-to horse was going by the name of Jamie's Inheritance. Why don't you tell us about uh, how much money you won on that? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a rich man uh, winning $0. So a little background on the story here. Tanner's, Tanner's a little newer to the horse racing game, but I've taught him the most learning. important thing uh, and the most important aspects of going to the track, and that is going to look in the ponies in the eye. And, Very uh, true. At, throughout the day, you might you might not see a whole lot, but every now and then there's one, there's a pony that's really really speaking to you, and you can kind of see it. He's ready to race. He's a little... You look him in the eye. You look him in the eye. You see he's a little fired up. He might be, might be bucking around a little bit, and that... Uh, Jamie's inheritance was that horse for me that day. Middle middle of the day, probably raced five or six. Hadn't really seen a whole lot down there, and finally saw this horse. And I, I'm telling Tanner and uh, and Michael that they need to bet the house on this, and that I'm going to go bet the house. Yeah, Ni- the Nigel's strutting around going, "That's my horse. Yeah. That's my horse right there. That's yeah. my horse." <laughs> yeah, so I'm all pumped up. But the problem was, uh, I was so pumped up about this horse that. By the time we left the paddocks, there was only about a minute, minute and a half left to post your bets. And so got up there, and there was someone in front of me. And so by the time I got to the bet, the bet encounter, I was uh, I was feeling the pressure, and I made my other bets that I was hoping to make, and forgot to put anything down on uh, on Jamie's inheritance. And uh, who won that race? And uh, Jamie's inheritance won that race. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> Long long odds horse. I think it was thirty to one, yep. thirty plus to to one. And was the course, back of the pack too until the yeah, very end. Yeah, went from the back to the front. We just did everything you'd want want from the pony, and uh, and both Michael and Tanner ended up putting placing bets on on uh, on that horse and won money. And I was the uh, the idiot that got right down to the fence to watch the race and realized that I hadn't put any money down, <laughs> and uh, and got to watch watch my horse win the race. So. Padawan becomes the master. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, Kaylee was really mad at me because she was all about it. She like she wanted to put a win bet on that horse, and I was trying to play it safe because we already put a few win bet- bets out there, and we weren't hitting on them. And so I just put a place bet just to play it safe. And of course, like we hit it. I was super excited, still to win a little bit of money. And Kaylee was instantly just pissy at me for <laughs> not, not trusting win- in me. Yeah. My horse that I didn't even trust in. Going to the track's always a good time. Uh, 
And then, and then Michael did the smart thing about like race nine. He's like, all right, I won quite a bit of money. I'm going to go ahead and leave. Yeah. And then Nigel and I and Kaylee, <laughs> we end up just staying through the rest of it in the next <laughs> yeah. two or three races. Yeah. So all the cash that was and then blew the rest of our money <laughs> yeah. that we had yeah. on the last couple races that just didn't matter for anything. <laughs> yeah, that's that's rule number two. Uh, no, rule number one being go look the horse in the eye every time. Rule number two is after the big money race, always leave because that's the sucker races. <laughs> and that's where you think you're going to win all your money back and you lose everything. See, I don't so, know that you need to leave, but... Definitely, if you have a big win, I feel like that's when you're kind of like, all right, I'll throw 25 cents on, like, a box Superfecta, you know, so it costs two bucks or whatever. Like, that's my only bet. It's a Hail Mary bet, but if it hits, you'll make a lot of money. But if not, it's, like, two bucks a race. And you yeah, kinda, when, and you well, just Well, when you don't it. win, then you're trying to win it all back on the next three races. Yep. And then you just keep parlaying Let it that ride. into, yeah, keep parlaying that into uh, worse and worse bets, which is what I, where I was at. And that uh, ended up. I had, I had won. Track always wins. Yeah, I had won one bet after uh, after my my uh, mishap that got most of my money back. But it was also it was a nice day. A couple of sodas. Uh, I wasn't feeling like I wanted to wait in line at the cash register afterwards to go get sixteen bucks back. So I was just kind of laying the lumber on the last race. Like, hey, I might as well might as well have I've some de- fun. I've definitely done yeah. that before. Might too, as well see what like... might as well see what you can. See what you can do because I I'm not really feeling going back into the line to go get twelve bucks, so I might as well bet a little outside of what I would usually do here. So it was uh you know not my not necessarily my normal strategy, but man going to the, going to the track, great time always. Uh, wish wish we'd get out there more often. And Luke missed out on this uh, this fun weekend, so. It was Tanner and Kaylee's anniversary, so naturally they spent it with me watching the ponies, <laughs> <laughs> smacking our legs and yelling, yeet, get up, get up. So. Yeah, I had the whole day kind of planned out for Kaylee and I to go celebrate our, our anniversary. It was a little bit delayed. I had to tell her, because most things I do for her, I try to keep it like a surprise, but I was like, all right, this last surprise, I had to give you a heads up. So you're not too surprised I'm having a third wheel with us, but Nigel is going to be at this event with us, so... Just giving you a heads up. She was super excited, but like, I had to like kind of let her know that like it's not like a romantic couple type of thing. It's gonna yeah. be not just gonna be there hemming and hawing, drinking beers, <laughs> yeah, and yelling at the ponies. Not just me yelling at horses and jockeys. That sounds like a celebration. <laughs> to me, exactly. All right, so uh, I guess let's get into some uh, some football talk, or I guess just uh, UW athletics talk. Jen Cohen going to USC. What was your guys' initial reaction on this? My initial reaction was Judas. <laughs> I, kind of. I, the timing of it all is just kind of funny because it's like the ink is still wet on the paper for the Huskies to move to the Big Ten. And obviously Jen Cohen has a big part of that. And then she's like, see ya. Yeah. But it's not that surprising because, I mean, if you've been at, you've been a Husky fan for a while, it's like USC's, you know, this isn't USC's first time doing it. You know, obviously they took Steve Sarkeesian from the Huskies, and uh, I hope that there's a similar outcome for how that whole whole thing went, is that that USC poaches Steve Sarkeesian, we get Chris Peterson. Yeah. Upgrade. Yeah. And so Jen Cohen, she's been great. Um, I didn't even realize until I heard this the other day that, like, she's been at UW now for 19 years, I think. 
Yeah, she was she's, associate she's AD. A, yeah, she's Prior to that, I'm sure she held, yeah, held a, some similar but different role uh, prior to that. And then she's been the AD at UW since, what, 2014? Right after Chris Peterson got hired. Yeah. 2014, 2015. She did her duty. Yeah. And uh, she... I think she left it better than uh, better than she came overall, or better better than it was oh. when she got there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just similar with Sarkeesian, you know, like she's a SoCal girl, like yeah, that's, that, that's her, that's, that's her where, home, that's where her family's from is SoCal, and it's closer to home. Yeah, and it, and I mean, honestly, it's like a lot more money at USC. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like at the end of the day, so like we're you know as big a Husky fans as we know, and I have no problem. Puffing out my chest about the legacy and tradition of UW, but like honestly, just facts are facts. USC is bigger than UW. If they come calling, you better hope that whoever they're calling for just likes us more. You know? Yeah. They're going to be able to offer more money. There is more tradition and legacy, and it's in Southern California. A lot of people respond to that too. Good honor. I think she, like, like Nigel just said, she left it better than she. Got it. So football program's in a great spot. My bigger concern is in that same vein is her poaching talent. Like, I think there's a very real possibility that by the end of this year or the next year, Lincoln Riley's going to make a move to the NFL. I got to think that Jen Cohen is going to be looking at Kalen DeBoer as a top candidate to replace the head coach at USC. So that's a concern. Yeah, that's a concern. Although I, I saw them kind of touch or they interviewed Keelan DeBoer about this, I think yesterday, and his response, which I think is uh, promising for us, is for one, he likes you, Dad. Which you know, whatever every coach says, every coach loves every to coach, place their every coach, coach, coach at. Yeah, loves to place their coach at. But the bigger thing is that his daughter is playing college softball. At UW because his daughter is a starting is a, now. Um, I believe it's either this year or next year. She's, I think she is a recruit and has Same, been, yeah. you know, has been, uh, you know, signed a letter of intent or whatever. I don't, I don't know if she starts this year or next year, but I, I think that's the path is that she's yeah, going. Well, you know, she's coming to play softball at UW. So hopefully that will uh, keep keep his roots uh, at UW for a couple years just because... Yeah, well, with the transfer be... portal, I don't know that that really has that much staying power. She can come to UW, play one season, and then transfer out and do that. But yeah, but, but, I, but you still have... UW has a more prestigious softball program than than USC. True. So you, you maybe maybe that's something that keeps him here. I mean, either way, I mean, in, I, in general, I'll take my chances. I don't think the head football, I'm sure Kalen DeBoer loves his daughter and respects her softball abilities, but I don't think he's making his career choices based on where his daughter is playing collegiate athletics because he can still go be the coach at USC and his daughter can play softball at UW and they can both be happy about their decision. Like Impossible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say that. Following, following the Chris Peterson kind of line is that I would be more hopeful that this is as big as the, they the said, limelight that he wants. Yeah, they said the same thing uh, about USC before they hired Clay Helton. Yeah, that Chris Peterson was on the way there. Yeah, yeah. every time a major program has a head coaching vacancy, Chris Peterson's name gets thrown in. And that included when he was at UW, and that includes now when he hasn't even coached now in a couple years. Yeah. So, you hope, but and 
obviously Chris Peterson denied USC because I think we talked about this before is that it's why we liked DeBoer when he got hired is that he seems kind of cut from the same cloth and we love the cut of his his jib <laughs> is that he's, he's the... <laughs> you okay there? yeah sorry <laughs> sorry you talk been... about Kaylin DeBoer's jib and all of a sudden Luke's I'm a, yeah I've been I've been trying to do some catch up work with these Rainiers, so it's got a it's having a love hate relationship. But is that you hope that exactly is that a place like UW is large enough to and be the kind of platform that he wants to showcase his style of football, but he doesn't want to go to a place like USC that it's just you're completely under the microscope yeah. at all times, and so you hope for that. But I still think it's a concern that with her going there. I mean, say the same thing about the softball team. What's to stop USC softball from uh, poaching our coach, uh, Heather Tarr? Well. Right? That's she. Or did she already leave? No, Heather Tarr's still there. She's still there. Okay. She's been there for a long time. I think that's what's stopping them is because she's been with us for 10 plus years or more. But I guess that's the weird thing, though, with Jen Cohn is that she's been with UW for so long, and she's a local person, too, right? Like, she's from the Washington area. So no, like, I said it before. She's from Southern California. California. Oh, she is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is her homecoming. She grew up a L.A. stone's throw from uh, USC, which actually means, like, an hour and a half. <laughs> right. But that's everything in, L- in the greater L.A. area, so... Do you still think that UW could have done anything about it, though? Like, forked out more money for her? Or do you think this was just... I don't think so. No. That... Per what I was saying before, is that it's just kind of one of those things, is that if USC comes calling, there's nothing that UW can do to stop somebody from going. You just have to cross your fingers that UW is the mountaintop the dream, of, yeah, yeah, the is, of, what they, of what they want. Because it is a premier institution in college athletics, but it's yeah. not on the same tier as USC or Notre Dame, right? Like yeah. schools like that. And but it's like I, they have brand prestige that UW will never match. So if they come calling, you just have to hope that they like kind of being. Yeah. And I, I imagine for like, for her position, it's got to make things a lot easier. Just like the budget that you have <laughs> with things. Yeah. You're, you know, I'm, you're under the microscope a little more, obviously, like being an AD at USC. But, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to down to the numbers, I feel like your budget's going to be a lot easier to handle, which as an AD is probably a vast majority of your job is allocation of funds to, to the different programs and where the, where money's going. And so yeah, keeping USC, everybody happy. Yeah, exactly. USC seems like um, the premier destination for, for uh, someone who's in charge of that to, to for ease of life and ease of, you know, conversations that are going to have to be had. Like now that, yeah, you could have, you can have that money. It's, it's good to go. We got a huge, huge budget for that this year versus, other programs where it's like, yeah, we got to have some tough conversations. The uh, softball team's going to be eating slop from the. <laughs> I don't. Know. Uh, that's a bad example, but like, just you, we don't have the budget for whatever new thing, jersey, you know, uh, stadium upgrades, whatever it is. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the exact figure is, but USC is a private school. I got to imagine that their endowment is. Five to ten times larger than U Dubs. Like their cup, their cup is overfilled. <laughs> yeah, their cup runneth over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Their cup runneth over. Like they're not, they're not hurting for funds at any time. So it is a better job. 
it sucks to see her go. I know a lot of there's a lot of Husky fans that think she was shit, but I just don't think they understand what she's actually done for the program. So, so you happy do, for the memories had and wish her the best for what she's going to do moving forward. So you do see this as a huge upgrade for USC then? Absolutely. USC has, I'm a little surprised because, uh, what's his name, like Bond was their last AD. And I mean, he's the guy that obviously was there when they brokered the deal to move to the Big Ten, which is pretty big, obviously. Uh, but prior to that, USC is laughable that they all they did for their AD was they hired former USC football players, yeah. like Lynn, Lynn Swan. Swan. Exactly. Yeah, like, and they're just like, you have no experience at all. Yeah, no experience with the uh, administration side. Yeah, it's, and it's, also it you only know like, football. It was more glad hand, like people who can glad hand donors. Yeah, you know, donors will turn out their pockets because like, oh, Lynn Swan, sure, I'll go and show up because I just want to see Lynn Swan. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm and, trying to think. I completely blanking because the guy they hired right after him too was also a former yeah. USC player from yesteryear. But yeah, now they finally hired somebody who's actually a legitimate AD that has done the job for. 20 years now or yeah, at built, least up, so, built yeah. up to doing the job yeah actually has a resume to support yeah. <laughs> to support the hire yeah. so i think they're going to be pretty happy with what she can bring to that position for the new ad that's going to be the big question who's next and i think in the beginning from at least what i heard on radio people made comments about possibly chris peterson being the guy but i think he's made it very clear that he's not interested in that position then it's one of those things where it's Never say never, but I don't want to do that. So who do you guys foresee could possibly be the person that takes over that position? So I'll say two things on that. Uh, and I'll, and then I'll throw out a couple names and Nigel can let me know what he thinks about these names. The first is, is that like, yes, completely agree. Like Chris Peterson is not going to be the AD. I do think though... That A, he's obviously going to be a part of the hiring process. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That's not breaking news. I do think that there is a spot kind of building off of what we said on the last podcast about college football moving forward. Football will break off from the rest of collegiate athletics. I do think that there's a place that moving forward that it's like Chris Peterson has a role. Maybe he's the AD of football moving forward. Like, it's kind of a dual-headed it position. Breaks, it breaks off. That then you hire somebody to be the AD for all other sports. But when football breaks off from the NCAA and it's its own thing and, and it's NFL Super League, that then maybe Chris Peterson is kind of your, whether it's an AD or it's a head of football operations. Yeah. That then he that can... seems more like... Because Chris Peterson, much like we were just saying about, like, Lynn Swan and USC, is it like, I know the guy's smart and knows a lot about the inner workings of, of college athletics, but he'd probably be better served to be like the head of UW's football department, not the entire athletic department. So I do think that there is something to be said there. Yeah. If there's basically it just adds another another layer to the organizational tree of you have A D director of football operations right under that. Yeah, and that's AD kind of it's its AD own. AD covers thing. everything else. That yeah. covers, like, more football operations. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll see how things go from there, but I, I think that that's probably probably going to be the case, that you'd have some, at least some universities would hire that position, I feel like, just because it's going to have 
completely different rules and facets to it. Than, right. It's going to be a whole new landscape. Yeah. And so, like, you're going to need new and more personnel, basically, yeah. to traverse these unknown lands. And yeah. Chris Peterson, obviously, is a great person to do that for you. So... Yeah. If he's interested in that, because he is old head mentality... So he yeah, he's be, also he, well he's also well paid being on TV, so yeah. it'd probably take a, a pretty penny yeah. Yeah, yeah. to uh, pull him away from his fairly cushy TV job and get into the weeds of college athletic administration. Yeah. As far as names go, heard a few names thrown out, but first person I thought of, and to be honest, didn't know his name. I was just like, I know if I was UW who the first person I would target, and it's whoever San Diego State's athletic director is. Because, I don't know if we talked about this directly on the podcast, but prior to the Pac-12 dismantling, I think we were both in agreement that adding San Diego State as a Pac-12 team would be a great move. A, they've been a very good program, mostly in your power sports, football and basketball, the last 10 years. So I had to do a Google search, and it's J.D. Wicker is their AD. And I believe he just mentioned that he won AD of the year just like last year. Yeah, just, just in May this year. He also was a part of Washington State's athletic staff at one point, so he has PNW ties. So I think that's the first person that jumps off the page for me. Also helps the basketball program immensely. That's would yeah, I would like, yeah. Where the football program, assuming Kalen DeBoer is sticking around for the longer term, you think has some has a, you know pretty good situation going on, but someone who can help with the basketball program. Uh, yeah. And per like what I just said, is that like you should still have Chris Peterson that can bring some cachet and wisdom yeah. to the table. But he's also done a fine job. San Diego State's football team has also been good during that time, so it's not like yeah, it's not, it's like, not like he doesn't only, know anything yeah, about it's not it. Only, it's not only football. In my mind, that's who I think is the most realistic candidate that would be at the top of my list. I mean, at the same time, tough to pull somebody from San Diego. Be like, I know you've had a great time in San Diego. What do you think about coming up to Seattle? It's still a Power 5 job, though. Yeah. At a prestigious university that's going to be in the Big 12, as we talked about Big last Ten. week. Sorry, Big 10. Has a seat at the at the big boy table. Yeah. So, which San Diego State is probably not going to have that seat at the big boy table, at least in the football realm. Maybe basketball. Yeah, well, but, basketball, they're already there. Yeah, exactly. At least under the current format. A uh, couple, couple names that I'll throw out there, and these are not they're they're much less realistic but i still just want to throw them in there in case you know there's a wild chance that it happens is that the first one scott woodward come on back come on back he was the ad before jen cohen he was the one who hired chris peterson we haven't talked about the johnny manzel documentary but you know he left he left uw right around that time texas a&m was leaving the big 12 and going to the sec a good career move is like you you're gonna have a chance to make a stamp here and like go to this texas a&m program that a has more money than god and they paid him a ton of money to go do it right and then you get to see them into the sec and then he parlayed that into being lsu's ad yeah and then instantly won a national championship there with joe burrow and so i believe he's still at lsu so that's a extremely tough pull but say it's a hail mary now that UW is leaving the Pac-12 and going to the Big Ten and the whole landscape of college football is changing, maybe maybe you can find yourself in a position where it's like, Scott Woodward, we'd love to have you back. 
We've seen what you've done with the SEC. Now you have a chance. It's not like you're moving down, because at least when he did that previously, you're kind of moving up. You're moving from the Pac-12 to the SEC, and then you moved from a middle-tier program in the SEC to a top-tier in LSU. Maybe you can entice him to come back. I think that's going to be a difficult one. But... Yeah, no, I, no. I I think so too. But again, kind of per the whole conversation that we've had, is that you you, you got to hope it's always you're in Seattle. You always got to hope that somebody has some sort of affinity for the area, and he obviously has experience. Yeah, Bat, Baton Rouge isn't exactly a, a paradise like Seattle can be. So, and then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we've been there, and we know. Yeah, love the Bayou, but. The last one, the last one I'll throw out, and this is not my idea. This is actually something I heard Softy say. Greg Byrne, he's Alabama's AD, but he's from Idaho. That's about it. <laughs> That's about it. All I, I got yeah, on it. Maybe small he wants town to come back to the Northwest. Small town Idaho guy who just kind of rose up through the ranks, and now he's Alabama's AD. Kind of in that what a, same. What a rise! Yeah, exactly. But maybe in that kind of same vein that like. You're from this area. You've been at the biggest program. Maybe you're just looking for a new challenge. Maybe you want to come on home. And at least now with UW being in the Big Ten, you can see the writing on the wall that it's like, here's my chance to move to a different program. Maybe you're more enticed by the by the fact that at Alabama, like it is very football centric. Like I have more to offer to other programs. I don't really know. If I'm if I'm UW, I'm shooting for the stars, right? I'm not looking necessarily for the AD of some. I mean, I just said San Diego State, but a, a Mountain West Conference type team or some Ohio no, Valley. Nevada's AD, which is one of the ones on the list. I yeah, saw. yeah. But you it's like you don't you, need to. Yeah, you don't need to necessarily. It'll be a national search, you know. It's, yeah, it's you're a, especially with the move to the Big Ten. Is it like this is what kind of clout you should be able to get? Is it like no, no, we're not looking for somebody who's moving up. We're looking for somebody who wants to move laterally, and they like our program better. Now we should be in a position where we can pick from the best of the best. Much like USC is taking Jen Cohen from us. Great, we'll go to another major program that has run super well. And we'll take their AD. I'm not going to be bummed if they take, like I said, still J.D. Wicker is still probably top on my list. But part of that is because it's realistic because that is an upgrade career-wise for him. But UW should be in a position where they should be able to approach somebody on a lateral move. That's like, you're already at a primetime university, but you should come here because we'll pay you money. And better things to offer than Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah. Like, that's where that's where my head's at. One one other one I'll throw in because I, I just remembered this conversation that I heard the other day. Pat Chun, uh, WSU's uh, AD, is on the short list for the Huskies. But I just heard the other day that apparently he has some serious ties with Ohio State. And yep. Ohio State's um, athletic director is stepping down. And so they're yep. going to be going through the hiring process as well. So... I think that could be another guy that uh, he's probably definitely looking to leave WSU at this point, given the given the uh, news that has come out in the last few weeks. If Ohio State doesn't hire him, he, although it sounds like he's kind of a front runner with with the ties that he has there, it might be another one that uh, you still get the AD job with with UW. I think that I would, and I don't know much about him other than, other than he's WSU. He's done a good job, AD. Yeah. And, and like I like Dickert, 
I like their uh, basketball coach. I can't think of his name right now, but Isn't it like Kyle Smith. Yeah, so, yeah, the most generic name on the planet. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that would be really funny if Pat Chun up and left and went to Ohio <laughs> State or UW. UW would probably be more funny. Either one serves the purpose. Per my uh, rant at the end of the last podcast about WSU fans being salty, <laughs> and not that Pat Chun is the one that is like flaming the fire or fanning the fire on this on that front it would be complete comedy to me if then after all of this and all of the cougar tears that have been spilled about UW betraying them is that then their AD yeah exactly talk about <laughs> loyalty <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. yeah UW would be the real the real knife in the back but even Ohio State I feel yeah. like serves that same purpose that if he left and went to Ohio State yeah, see, Cougars, this is why we could never align ourselves with you. <laughs> you can't keep superstar talent around. Sorry, it's just been proven. Ask Jane Delora, but that was probably a, more of a bullet dodge yeah, than wow. anything. But yeah. J.D. Wicker, you heard it first. He'll be, sign- he'll be signing a contract within the month. <laughs> so transitioning now into uh, UW football, we had our big game coming up against Boise State, September 2nd, this upcoming Saturday. Or not this upcoming, but the following Saturday. And I have one question for Nigel. What are you making at the tailgate? Oh, man. That is a good question. That's a fantastic question. Uh, week one, Boise State. Man. I mean, those, uh, those birria tacos last year were pretty fire. That could be a good opening meal. I it's feel like... Early, it's an early game, right? It's noon. Noon? So, so, yeah, so it's probably yeah, going to be more breakfast. Yeah, it's probably going to be more breakfast. It'll probably be more breakfast. Breakfast yeah. burritos or it's something like that. That's, I, lo- I love a 12 kickoff, but yeah, it definitely Doesn't cuts mean, down on the yeah. tailgating. Uh, there's only so much you can do in that short it's, amount of time. It's going to have to be breakfast stuff. You know, I have a suggestion if you want to hear me out. I'd love to hear it. So here's a little fun fact. Um, in Boise... Besides, like, actual uh, Spain and Portugal, the highest number of Basque populations in Boise. So maybe a little... It's the Spain of the United States. It's the Spain of the United (laughs) States. So I'm thinking maybe you make a paella. Mm. That might be a fun little dish to start off the season with. (laughs) Something something (laughs) light for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) And it's easy to make, too. A little Basque paella. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Using one of those giant ass pans to yeah, well, cook it in for yeah. like six hours. Yeah. What um, time are you guys showing up to the tailgate for this game for a noon game? Hopefully I think seven a.m. I was gonna say eight o'clock at the latest. I think has to be the goal. It's got to be an early one. You gotta. I think you the, bring your A game and you start off at six in the morning. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, if the gates are open, <laughs> we still we still need an E one. We still you, need an E one pass. Yeah. You can tailgate the gate. <laughs> That's cool too. Yeah. Efforting on that. Anyone who has an E one pass, uh, shout out to your boy if you get an extra one. Yeah, I think it's got to be breakfast stuff. That's that's uh, what I'm gonna go for. I don't know exactly what that is yet. Maybe some like pulled pork. Maybe some Legion of Doom sandwiches, something like that. That's good. Pulled pork with an egg, fried egg on top. I've still like had that. a craving now that's gone on for like two years, and I feel like now that we have the uh, the flat top, it's just like a complete flat of hash browns. 
Just I, I think that. Well, no, there could be other things, but no, no, no. I was just hash browns. <laughs> yeah, hey, hash browns. I, I need. We did that last year. We did it. We did the hash browns. Nah, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe exactly. maybe with the twelve kickoff, I'll remember this <laughs> yeah, time. Exactly. I, I won't be so sauce that I'll remember. I'll remember <laughs> breakfast at least. Yeah, Legion Legion of Doom sandwiches, a little pulled pork, some uh, some fried eggs on top of a hoagie. Yeah, that sounds. I think good. that's. Sounds like a nice. I think nice it's coming starter. together. Nice starter. The problem is, is it usually for could also do uh, something. Something I'm I'm leaning towards chili killies or uh, pulled pork with a with a fried egg on top. So yeah. there's your answer, Tan. The, the problem with your question, Tan, is that most of the time inspiration comes about Thursday night before <laughs> yeah. before the game. I think last year we did the uh, we did the uh, Chicago beef sandwiches because yeah. we were watching, watching the, bear. the bear. We were watching yeah. the bear like that week, and we're like, that's what we should do for week one is. Some uh, Chicago beef sandwiches. And that was fire. And that's when Kalia showed up to the get- tailgate. She didn't actually come to the tailgate. She like pulled around yeah. in her car, stopped in the middle of traffic, and like basically threw her a sandwich towards her, and she just sped off because yeah. all she wanted was the sandwich. She didn't want. And that invite is open to anybody. Yeah, you course. don't have to go to the game to come to the tailgate. Yeah, you want to show up and eat food, drink beer, and then leave one once we all pack it up and get ready to go into the game. That invitation is out to any of our We can just stay at the tailgate. That too. We have a TV yeah. now. That's, yeah. yeah, also true. We got, we got the... Uh, back, I've been the tempted to do that. Tailgate's up. awesome. Just sit there and watch it on TV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hold down the fort. Yeah. New, <laughs> new segment's going to be... Uh, give my weekly take on, uh, on food items. Going into actual football season, uh, one of the big injuries that just happened was with Cameron Davis. What kind of effect is that going to have onto the season? Who do you foresee being the new cowbell of the team? Yeah, uh, huge effect. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think Nigel and I, I, don't, I don't remember how much we hammered on it on our Husky spring game. I expected Cam Davis to have a huge year. Yeah. He didn't really get yeah. any carries at the spring what, 13 game. 13 touchdowns last season? Is yeah, that something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, That's a... I mean, last year he had 13 touchdowns as basically the number two back because Wayne Tolapapa was the number one. Yeah, I think one A, one B. I think we but, both expected him to absorb a lot of the carries that Tolapapa took last year. So, based off of the year he had last year, sprinkling some of Tolapapa's yeah, north of 15 touchdowns was what I expected. With, yeah, with yeah. over a thousand yards. Um, the biggest thing I think, I mean, outside of losing those carries is that Cam Davis was a really good goal back and had really big-time nose for the zone. If you're a, an old Turks uh, football player, you, you know the phrase, nose for the zone. Uh, yeah, I don't think you need to be a Turks football player to know. To know <laughs> no, I'm pretty you sure. Be a Turks. Yeah, you ever you heard of this? To, you had to have McDick and tell it to you. You ever so heard you this ever phrase, heard nose for the zone? Uh, but, but yeah, he he had the nose for the zone. You have Richard Newton or our guy Dick Newton, aka Dick, who also has kind of shown in his past that he has that ability. I love but I love his talent, injuries. but yeah, his, his injury history is what I'm worried about with him. But if he's healthy, I think he's a great he's a great replacement for Cam Davis. But yeah, I mean, I think the way that this offense is constructed, it's obviously a pass first offense, and it's spread out. Talapapa did this too last year, but Cam Davis really showed us like in this style of offense, you don't need a complete running back. You don't need that Bijan Robinson type player. You just need somebody that it's like, hey, we need we need effective runs when we give you the ball, especially in short yardage downs. 
you need to be able to go get those two or three yards on a short play. The guys in the running back right room right now, they're more geared towards this spread offense. They're pass catchers. They're a little more slight of frame. There's there's some big boys still in there, but he he showed last year that he was that guy, and that's why he got all those touchdowns. Because, like Nigel said, he had that nose for the zone. Outside of Dick Newton, whose health concerns are a real issue, I don't know who that guy is right now, but yeah, it's a great opportunity. And I heard even just just last week, Ryan Grubb talking about this, that, that there's a clear number one in the room, and it was Cam Davis. And outside of that, the number two spot was still wide open. Now your number one's gone, so your number one spot is wide open. So there's a number of – I mean – we could go off and name every running back in there, and I think that would be about as much as we any of us know about who's going to be the number two at this point. You know, you can say just about any of those guys, and I think coming into the season, it's going to be trial by fire a little bit. I think the the kid from Mississippi State that transferred in, um, Dylan, yeah, is it Dylan, Dylan Johnson, Dylan Johnson. I think he's kind of a name that is a front runner right now, but I think any of those guys could be could be the guy and I think that especially in these first couple weeks you're gonna see just about everybody getting touches you're gonna see five running backs play yeah I think week and, one yeah you're gonna see just about every, everybody getting touches these first couple weeks so that hopefully go by the time you get into conference play against Cal you've got a one and two figured out yeah I was gonna ask you guys about Dylan Johnson do you guys have I mean have you seen any tape on the guy do you know much about him well the funny thing is is that Nigel and I were just talking about him the other day, obviously right when Cam Davis got hurt. He's a pass-catching back. Like, he played at Mississippi State with Mike Leach. Like, that is his go-to is that he's a receiving back, which is why, ideally, he'd be a perfect one-two combo with somebody like Cam Davis, who, like, Cam Davis can catch the ball, too, which is why I'm really bummed that he's hurt. I was really excited to see what he was going to do this year. But he's proven that he's a good between the tackles runner Dylan Johnson is a pass catcher do you have his do you have his numbers right up in front of you because I was shocked is that he's like he's like six foot two twelve two fifteen something like that like he's he wouldn't be your prototype typical like weight for six a six foot two eighteen there you go like he's not your prototypical like pass catching build like if you saw six foot two eighteen on the roster you'd be like this guy's just a bruiser between the tackles but as far as I know, like that's not really his game. He's more of a pass catcher out of the backfield. So yeah. it, I mean, he. I'm looking at his Mississippi State uh, stuff here. Over three three seasons, 35 games, carried the ball 229 times for 1,200 yards and 11 tutties. Caught the ball 149 times for 864 yards. So, there you go. Yeah. Uh, 2021 and 2022. Both years, he had 89 carries for 2022, 488 yards. The year before that, 485. Which is pretty good, five yards a carry. Yeah, five and a half yards a carry. Yeah, yeah, but I think that speaks to his pass-catching ability is that he's more of an explosive player that if he can get him out in space. Yeah. Which I wouldn't peg from a guy that's 218 pounds. I don't know what his ability is to run through the tackles, which I think a running back in this offense, obviously you're – first job is pass protection your second job is pass catching really one of the main one of the main pillars is that you got to be able to get short yardage yeah and so i just don't know who that guy is in this running back room i'm very confident and i know nigel is too is that 
Dick Newton will yeah. be that guy. I'm just worried that he'll get hurt. Yeah. The guy runs too hard. Yeah. Def- day one, day one, Dick Newton will be the short yardage guy. It's just, he just runs so violently that he always gets hurt. Yeah. Like he's never shied away from trying to run somebody over, which is why we love him. Yeah. But that's how you get hurt is by not finding ways to be a little bit more elusive and miss contact. At the end of the day, you still got Michael Penix, you got wide receivers, and you have a talented running back room. So I think that they'll be able to overcome this injury. I'm just more saddened by the fact that I was really excited about what Cam Davis is going to do this year. Because he's always been a talented guy. You know, I think, was that was that last year? That he fumbled the ball a couple times early in the year yeah, when it was looking like he was really going to be the guy and Tula Papa wasn't, you know, he was the old head, but he was going to get phased out. And then Cam Davis fumbled it a few times and they kind of punished him for that. But then once they brought him back, is that he was awesome. And so I was really looking forward to this year is that you're going to get more Another carries and you're going to get more carries. targets because yeah. he is a good pass catcher too. Like, I don't want it to be lost that. Like, oh, he's just the between-the-tackles running back. It's like, no, he's more than that. He can catch the ball, too. I think I think they'll get through it. It's college football. You can carry – it's not like the NFL where you only have three running backs on the roster. There's like five or six guys behind Cam Davis. Any one of them now has their opportunity. Sam Adams, I like him a lot, too. And there was also an offensive lineman that got hurt, too, that he's out for the season as well, right? Yeah, guard Memoir, uh, I think is his name. Uh, he wasn't going to be a starter, but he is one of those guys that I think he plays center and guard. He's yeah. he's had a lot of backup reps, and so that is a loss because we already lost our center last year. Yeah. So we have a new center coming in. There's always depth, depth concerns at the center position. So now you lose one of those guys that probably wasn't going to be a starter, but is basically going to be your backup center in a pinch or backup guard. It hurts, but you didn't lose a frontline starter. Sad for the guy, too, because, like I said, you're one injury away from having your opportunity to now be a starter and a real contributor, and now he's lost that. Not as big of a loss, but still a loss nonetheless. So what's your guys' expectations going into this game against Boise State? Utter domination. <laughs> no, I think I think it's actually uh, I think it's going to be a good game through throughout most of it. I hope that the Huskies are able to. Why do you, pull why do you think that Boise State's a perennial? Why do I think that it's going to be a good game through most of it, or yeah, and not a blowout? Yeah, I, Boise State's a perennial powerhouse for mid majors. They have a quarterback who was a true freshman last year, but he's a, he's a good runner for comparisons. To yeah, I meant, I meant that as a real question because, yeah. honestly, I don't know what Boise State is bringing yeah. to the table. They, I know that they're a good team because they always I, are. But I think he had, I think their quarterback was was freshman player of the year in the Mountain West. He's drawn comparisons to Vince Young. So he's really good run runner with great passing ability as well. Um, and I think he's a big guy. I think he's 6'3", Six three, something like that. Tall, athletic dude. Basically, D one, you know, power five talent that's on Boise State at quarterback. Another year older, another year better. Guy like that, you know, it, this is probably one of his biggest games of the year that he's gonna have. If you're not ready for it, take Boise State for granted. Guy like that can uh, be trouble for you. And it's early in the season. You're not sharp as a team. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I mean, I hope obviously it's a complete blowout and the dogs go out there put up put up eighty on them. But just because I think uh, 
first game of the year kind of evens things out a little bit between teams because both teams haven't played anything. You haven't been through the adversity yet. So I'll say it's close through three quarters and Huskies pull away by two scores in the fourth quarter. That would be right on the spread. I got it at 14 and a half right now. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I, I'll comment more on what I think about the game, but I'm just trying to figure out where their quarterback is because I see two guys. I'm just looking at their roster real quick. Uh, Colt Fulton. Is, is that the guy? Because that's just a funny name. Colt Fulton, uh, 6'4", 204. Uh, I'm guessing it's Talon Green. I'm at 6'6", 223. I think that's uh, the guy. That is a big boy. Yeah. Yeah, I hear all of that. I would not be surprised if your prediction of what is going to happen does happen. It's kind of a cagey game through the first two and a half quarters, and then the Huskies' talent just takes over in the third and fourth quarter. Like, that's how these games should go, realistically, right? You're a bigger program. Eventually, your weight and athleticism takes over, and you wear the team down. But I do think, like, kind of broadly speaking, is that my expectations of the Huskies this year is to go to the college football playoff. Yeah. And so, a team like Boise State, you should come out and do what you did to Michigan State last year. Come out and drop 28 points to start the game. Basically unanswered. Maybe you give up a touchdown or a field goal in there in the first half, but be up by over 20 points in the first half. Kalen DeBoer, the way that he runs the program, you shouldn't have this like first game jitters lull. It's like you should come out prepared and ready and have the game plan. Just go execute the game plan. Score every possession. The defense should be better. I don't, I don't care that Talon Green is 6'6", 223. Yeah, you should be Don't better. fuck them up. You should be better. No, there's no doubt about that. And you should, I mean, you're a top 10 team. You should play like it to start the year. I think, for one, losing Cam Davis changes things a little bit. And that spread was 17 and a half, I think, just at the beginning of the week before that Cam Davis news came out. Um, Shows how po- important he is that <laughs> yeah, if that's true, because that's yeah. a three point swing yeah. on one player getting hurt. Yeah, exactly. I think people just like, I mean, I think people like the 17 and a half. In general, yeah. just because that's a that's a big for all the reasons you just yeah, said exactly for all the reasons I just said people like that seventeen liked that seventeen and a half but uh, you see Roma Dunze was named to a preseason All American list number, first team All American I expect him to have a first team All American type of year first team All American type of game week one maybe let's say two tutties hundred and twenty five yards uh, week one and start off his campaign nicely to uh, go go out there and be the second wide receiver picked off the board probably behind Marvin Harrison Jr. There's my there's my nice little call for the for before the season starts. Yeah, I mean I'm right there with you. That's why I feel like I feel like the Huskies should have no problem with Boise State is cuz yeah, this passing before, this passing game should be better than they can handle. Yeah, I saw it at the spring game. All Penix has to do on any play is throw the ball to Roma Dunze. The guy's open every time. Yeah. It might it might be a little close early, but I think it should be a blowout. If it's not, I'm not going to be completely surprised for all the reasons that Nigel laid out that it is the first week of the season. Boise State is not a scrub by any, by any means. The defense got better as the season went last year, but they still have question marks. At the end of the day, you're, you're contending, in my mind, you're contending for a college football playoff spot. Every play is the biggest play of the season, and you just yeah. need to go out there and treat it like that, and I think the Huskies will. And like I said, I'm hoping for a Michigan State 
type performance that there's just no misses. You start the game out, you have a perfect script. You go down, just go out, score, score immediately, score early, score often. Go, you know, yeah. Timely I mean, defense. that's the always the key when you play a team that's uh, especially at Boise State, like mid mid major ish type school, is that uh, you just don't ever let them hang around. Go you out, can't give you, them a chance. Exactly. Don't don't give them don't give them breath. Put your put your foot on their throat early. You you don't have to worry about it. So. Um, I, that is what I hope happens. 48-14. Yeah. Ooh, love it. Nigel, your prediction? Um, I'll go I'll go uh, 35-21. I'm going to go 31-21. Oh. Ooh, a little okay. closer. All right. All right. What's your beef with the Huskies? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my last question for you guys before we put a bow on UW Huskies for this week is – all the hype about Penix and potentially being a Heisman candidate and everything. Is the hype real? I think that hype is completely real. I would just say my only caveat to all of this is that it's his health, right? Yeah. Like well, we weren't doing the podcast before the season started last year, but would have told you once the season got going that it's like the guy's never played more than six games in a season. Nobody's doubted his ability or his talent throughout his entire career, it's his availability that is a question mark. And last year was the first year that he played every game. So I have no doubt that if he goes out and does the types of things that he is capable of doing with this, with the talent that's around him, there's no reason that he won't get invited to the Heisman ceremony. Yeah, I I think the same thing. I think what it's going to come down to at the end of the day is that he has three new offensive linemen. His guard, center guard are all... New to him, yeah, but they all have experience. Yeah, they all have experience. Yeah, one of them, one was a starter the year prior before he got there. They're all experienced guys. Melee's maybe not the center. But, yeah, but he, but he's played but center he's before. Pl- yeah, he's played center, just not starting for UW. Either way, new new offensive line. Last year he got sacked zero times at Husky Stadium, and maybe a handful of times total on the season. That help that goes a long way with staying healthy. Is when you're not touched ever. If the Huskies O line can keep him clean all season. Then he'll be he'll be in New York come December. Whether or not he's getting the trophy or not, that's a toss up. But I think if he's if he stays as clean as he did, uh, he's going to throw for a lot of yards. And and receivers be, will be open exactly. And with the, with the, the uh, system we have in place, like receivers are going to be open. He's going to throw for a lot of yards, and he'll be he'll be in New York come December. If he does have a good season, he makes it through the whole thing without any kind of major injury. Next year, going into the NFL draft, where do you foresee him getting picked? I've heard a wide spectrum of of <laughs> picks. Like I listen to Dan Patrick religiously, and he's been one of the few people on the major circuits that I feel like it's really pumped him. That has him right there as the number two or number three quarterback off the board, which probably puts him top five, top ten, like Caleb Williams, Drake May. Or, you know, maybe your one-two picks. So much changes during the football season. Like, everyone's ready to say that Caleb Williams is the number one overall pick. If I had a nickel for every time that somebody was going to be the number one overall pick. Denard Robinson would have been the number one overall pick every year. Especially at quarterback before they played their last year. Like, I'd I'd have a good amount of money. Or enough to buy an 18-pack, I guess. But... (laughs) 
but if I'm if I'm a if I'm an NFL team, I'd be I'd be slightly worried about his injury history. But if he does it another year, in a row. yeah, if he does it another year, the only thing is that he does it another year. He, when he gets to the NFL, he's not going to be most likely in as good of a situation as he was. Yeah, like he's, he's, not like, he's not getting sacks. zero sacks. Zero sacks at home, you know, like that's just not realistic. Yeah. Not that he's not that he's in. I think some of that too is it's not like every single play was perfect blocking. He also has athletic ability to get away from some of these and you know roll out in the pocket. Like so, it's not all just the fact that he had perfect blocking. But I would still be a little hesitant. But I think he can all get flushed out this year. You know, he's. I, I think he had some uh, some issues with hitting the target precisely last year, which was. I think the big thing that they're working on in the offseason is like in the numbers, not making your guys go go all over. And an NFL quarterback that's going in the first round probably needs to be that kind of precise, unless they're super athletic that can make up for it. So I don't know. I I feel like that's the nit nitpicky type of stuff though that makes him a top talent. Is it like if that's what you need to work on? Is it like hey, we need to see you hit the numbers more, not just their catch radius? It's like that's how you know the guy's accurate on time. That I think that's the biggest thing that Penix has as compared to other QB prospects that have come out in the NFL is that he might not be, you know, in the 90th percentile of athleticism in ter- in terms of overall athleticism. He has great arm talent. It's his timing. Yeah. That is great. He knows when to get the ball out and get it onto a guy. It doesn't always need to be right on the numbers. Obviously that's ideal. Could also make a case is that when you could when you could read the defense is like I didn't want to hit him on the numbers there I needed to put it on the sideline for him to make a sideline catch yeah and he has the arm talent to do it I think if he has the type of year that he had last year I do think that with the quarterback craze and how rookie contracts go I could see him being I'd put him higher than that I'd put him as the third quarterback off the board and based off the way people are talking about it now it'll be quarterback quarterback one two. So that could put you anywhere from 3 to probably 12. He's got injury concerns. If you don't have that good of a year, that could slide you right into the second or third round pretty quickly. I think he's got, I mean, third round floor. If he if he's in... If he's in Outside New of York, injury. Yeah, if he's in New York, then then I'd say mid to late first round is to answer your question, Dan. Hendon Hooker's his floor for draft pick. That's in my mind. Like he's a very Hendon Hooker type player. Yeah. Let's go ahead and transition into baseball now. We had our Seattle Mariners. Nigel, can I get a little? The Seattle Mariners. Coming off an awesome road trip. They went with a uh, another eight-game winning streak. And then even yesterday when they lost in extra innings, it's one of those fluke games where they had the guy picked off at second. They had Tim Anderson picked off at second. Just a unfortunate throw where it hits him in the head. So... And even with that game, it's just this chaos ball that they're starting to embrace again. They're down, what was it, three to one that they were down going into the ninth inning. They come back, and the boys just come up clutch again, making it a 4-3 game. The Mariners are hot right now. Just checked it to see the standings today. One game out of the number one spot in the AOS. We're not even talking about the wild card anymore. We're talking about the AOS. We want the division. We want the division, baby. 
Yeah, when, you when know. Buner say '95, Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing: Jay Buner said it in '95. Every other radio host is now stealing this from me, but I was the original person that said this to <laughs> Nigel. And Jay Buner said this in '95. They were in the kind of a similar position. Things were slowing down for them. They were kind of high expectation. I think they were Got, 13 games back in August. Yeah, and they were falling off the rails. But they, that was the first year the wild card spot came into effect for playoff baseball. Jay Beaner said, he's like, screw the wild card. We don't want the wild card. We want the whole damn thing. And that's what the Mariners, they're embracing that and they're going for it. But I guess the concern I have with that said with some of these extra inning games that we've been seeing or even ninth inning, you know, going into the ninth inning, it seems to be a little hairy. The position of the closer, it seems like that's been kind of a problem for the Mariners recently after getting rid of Paul Seawald. So my question for you guys there, what do you, am I overreacting to think that this is an issue that needs to be kind of possibly solved? And who do you actually foresee being that closer? Because we've seen Munoz out there. We've seen Matt Brash. We've seen kind of a combination of different guys. So who do you think should actually be our bona fide closer, especially getting closer to September and, you know, the playoffs or the postseason? I think that it's got to be Munoz personally. Um, he's got he's got that electric stuff. I mean, he he throws he he's throwing the ball in triple digits with the fastball whenever he wants. And I just heard this the other day. I hadn't I hadn't heard this before that his slider was rated the toughest pitch to hit in all of baseball last year by the players. I think they did like a, a poll on that. I hadn't heard that and. Uh, and I haven't seen it recently from his slider because that seems to be the pitch. Slider's been a little weak <laughs> lately. But... Been, uh, he's been hanging it up a little bit. And I think that, and I think that, like, kind of getting to your point, point, Tanner, is that I think that's been the problem for him since he's been the closer. And just in general this year is that I think they've been relying on his slider a lot because he got hurt early in the year. And so they, they don't want to necessarily use that gas all the time and kind of keep him fresh. He ends up hanging that pitch a little bit when they're in the, when they're expecting it, uh, because they know they can't hit the hit the hundred mile an hour pitch. So they're sitting breaking ball, and he hangs one. That seems to be when he's getting into trouble. I think that um, as we get down the stretch of the season here, they're going to have to let the reins off of him and say, just start throwing the, throwing the smoke, throw the hundred mile an hour fastball every time, and use that other pitch as as your you know, as your getaway pitch, as opposed to the opposite direction, what they've been doing. I th- and I think that that's, I think that's the why it was rated the, the nastiest pitch is because he, last year he was throwing 100 miles an hour every time and just using his fastball as his main pitch. And so when that frisbee slider came in, that like moves 18 inches plus or whatever it does, that's still going high high 80s, low 90s. Uh, it's impossible to hit because they're expecting a 100 mile an hour fastball and then it it drops off the, the map. So, you know, I think that Munoz is going to be the guy. They've already kind of made him the guy. I think he just needs to get back in the groove and, and kind of get the feel for that pressure of that situation. Yeah, I mean, you're on to something, and it's completely anecdotal, but even in that game that Tanner's referencing that they lost to the White Sox to end that series is that he ends up giving up the tying run by hanging a slider in there. But then he basically came back heavy fastball and ended up getting a couple strikeouts and getting out of it. Is that I think you're completely right, and we had talked about this before, is that 
He's I think he's throwing the slider a lot more because it's less strenuous on him, and you're going to see him just pump gas once things really get on the line yeah. here moving forward. And now that he's our... It's a long he, season. I, so. A, again, I agree that he should be the closer. Although, I still think Brash is a good enough player and a good enough relief pitcher that like you can kind of play who's the hot hand, who who do you feel has the best matchups here. Like They have all the data in the world be like, no, Brash has been really good against these three guys. Like This is his night, assuming that they're both equal freshness. But Munoz is probably the guy. I think you're going to see him pump more gas as we go. And the slider is really his, you know, put away pitch or just to, just to get their timing off. I do think, though, is that I'm not concerned about what they're doing right now. And Nigel and I had talked about this kind of after the Paul Seawald trade. Honestly, like, this is the perfect time to do this right now. You don't need him to be dominant right now. Like, obviously, you need to win games. Yeah, you want to build him up to dominance for September. You want to build him up. You want to build him up to get into that role. So if you have a couple of, like, shaky outings right now against the White Sox and the Royals, and we got the Athletics coming up pretty soon, now's the time to get your closing jitters out of the way. We need you to be dominant down the stretch, and more importantly, in the playoffs, assuming that the Mariners make it there. Yeah. So, like, if you're going to have kind of some rough patches, now is the time to do it. I don't think any of us here are worried about the type of stuff that Munoz or Brash has and their ability to shut the door in games. You're going to go through growing pains. Everybody has ups and downs in their season. They've been thrust into a role where they're high leverage. Yeah. And I actually heard Bill Kruger say this, and I think it's a good point, but this is... I do think that they're going to be better for it is that these guys are used to pitching seventh inning, even eighth inning, where I think a lot of batters are looking at it, assuming, you know, they're behind, but it's like, here's my chance to go out there and swing. I got to get something going. I got to get something going. Ninth inning batters know that it's their last at bat. They're a little more reserved. They want to see you throw strikes. They want you to come to them. And they're not as afraid to go down 0-2. It's your last at-bat. Because you're, prote- you're, you're swinging, you're protecting. protecting all the entire at-bat. So it's a different mindset for these guys. And Brash, I think, has more of a proclivity to throw balls. Sometimes because the stuff is just so filthy that it looks like it's going to be a strike. And then it just flies off of the plate. Guys take those pitches in the ninth. They don't take it in the seventh because they're up there ready to swing. So it's a little bit of a mindset change. Like, it is... You, you're, they're going to figure that out, though. It's like we got to come out and find ways to get our best pitches out early, get that count in our favor, and that's where their biggest problems have been: throwing first pitch balls, getting behind in the count, and then hanging a slider or something over the middle of the plate where then guys are ready to hit it. You're also like that game against the White Sox. You hung a pitch against Andrew Benintendi, who's a good hitter. Like especially in that situation, like. He, that guy's done it in in the World Series in the biggest games. Like that's that's the type of guy. Like he's that's why he gets he, paid. Exactly, he's not going to miss that pitch because that's what he does. You had that. You had, but against the Astros, like that game two against the Astros, Munoz shut him down. He went out there through all gas. Like big series, big game. Like he, you know took care of business in that. And then that Royal Series, it's kind of a interesting one. Like when we played them last. Last week, the first first time we played them, not the home series that's coming up 
now. That Royals team, I think, is is kind of sneaky right now, and I, I, they kind of give me some some Mariner vibes, honestly, and some old, like Royals of past when they were World Series vibes. Where I think they've got a lot. Of, I'd love to see where you take this. I'm just saying they've got <laughs> they've got a lot of young talent, and they've got mixed in with a guy like Salvi Perez. You've got Bobby Witt Jr., who's as you said the other day that. He was the number one player in baseball right before Julio. So that season before, right before Julio got called up. So you've got a couple guys there that are like true, true stars. Like Salvi Perez is the best catcher, hands down. Bobby Witt's a really good player. But I think they've got a good young core of guys that play scrappy ball. And so like they, they kind of, and they make you kind of play scrappy ball. Like the Mariners have done that in the past, but like recently that hasn't been their MO, especially the past couple like past two seasons they might have a stretch of that but service is pretty good about when they have a stretch of scrappy like poor baseball like he nips that in the bud pretty quick this royals team it usually were the ones bringing the scrappiness to the other teams and making them play that weird style of ball that chaos ball and so i think the royals kind of brought it to us a little bit and and you know yeah. made us make b- bad base running decisions and kind of did some of those some of those weird things. Well, just like any sport is that you want people to play your game. Exactly. Because you're better at your yeah, game you than they are. you control the tempo of the game. Yeah. That's that's when when you control the tempo, you usually win. And the Mariners have been really good at that because they're really good pitching squad. And so we control the tempo by our pitching, and then we play scrappy late and, and win the game. And the Royals kind of gave us a taste of our own medicine. We still prevailed in those games and ended up Which winning. is a testament to yeah. how good the Mariners – are yeah. and, and where they're at right yeah. now. Is but a it, lot of people came out of that series frustrated from watching it because it was it, it wasn't the most you know clean clean Mariners team you've ever seen. If they play like this against the Astros, they're going to get swept. And then what? Exactly. What did we, we do? And, yeah, yeah, we went out and swept the Astros and and smoked them in a couple yeah. of those games. Much like so, my point on the volleyball is that sometimes you need those games that test you a bit. Yeah. And you got tested against Kansas City. I think we all agree that. And it given, sharpens you a little bit. Yeah, you know? given the talent level, we shouldn't be tested that much against KC. But they did test you. Clearly, the Mariners came out better as a squad for it because you won three of four. You learned some lessons in it. And then they parlayed that against the Astros, who are clearly a good team. And they went and kicked their ass. Yeah. More or less. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, Nigel, I think your point is solid there about the, the Royals. Because they are a super scrappy team. And they're a good hitting team for the most part. The biggest thing why they're not a good baseball team at this point is because of their pitching. Yeah. And that's what they're missing. They're kind of the opposite of the Mariners of that aspect. Is that they just don't have the pitching. Yeah. But you put a few guys in that squad, change up the bullpen a little bit. Like, you're looking at a yeah. very they similar the team. as well. They hit, like... They get on. They get on base in general. Like they, they look at pitches. They they find a way on base. They're fast. They steal bases. They bunt. Like they do all those little like scrappy baseball things. And so they kind of they kind of brought it to you. And Julio, meanwhile, has the craziest stretch of baseball. Not only Julio, Julio and multiple guys have like some of the craziest stretches of inning offensively. Like Julio did something that no one's. No one's done in the major league since 1920 or something like that. 17 hits over four. I think games. it was the first time ever. Wasn't was it the it? first time ever? Okay, yeah. so so you have something that's never been done in baseball by Julio, hit or like offensive wise. You have multiple guys hitting four and five hits a game throughout that ten game stretch, and so 
you're able to prevail despite some mistakes that were made out there because guys are just absolutely on fire. Julio leading the charge on that. You've <laughs> we've joked about it, and I don't know how much has made it on the podcast, but we've made a few jokes here there about like people saying we need to trade Julio at the deadline and like just cut ties now. And those people can just not be more wrong. And it's it's funny now to to think about it even more so. I mean, it's, it's come full circle is that you were you were traveling in Europe like the cultured man you are. And when Shane stepped in, we kind of touched on that a little bit. This is why you pay these guys. Like, this is exactly what I said. In their worst year, a guy like Julio hits 250 with 20-something bombs or whatever. And then basically... Has the ability to do something offensively that's never been done. Exactly. In that same year. Yeah, and now you've seen it. Is it (laughs) like, we'll see what he does the rest of the year, but he's hitting almost 280. If he hits for pop for the rest of the year, he's going to have 30 homers and 100 ribbies and thirty over 30 stolen bases. Like, this is why you pay these guys. In their bad year, they hit 250 with a little bit of pop, but they have the ability to do something special, and he's really proven that the last couple of weeks. Yeah, or or even a series like, like the guy if he gets to thirty thirty, he might still get like MVP votes this year. Like, he, yeah. and then he'll really get paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like he might get. I don't think there's any question he's yeah. going to get MVP votes. Yeah, he's going to be assuming top he, five, you know, top five in MVP votes. But yeah, assuming like, he, I think Otani, something. Otani can probably not play another game the rest of the season and win the MVP. At this well, he's point. still batting. I, we're not even in that yeah. yet, but like I'm just saying in general, Otani could quit right now. Otani could have quit a month ago and still probably won MVP with his 40 bombs and and pitching abilities. But I think Julio three weeks ago people were talking about, or I guess we'll call it a month ago, people were talking about needing to cut ties and and just uh, do a do a rebuild with this team. And now you're looking at at a guy who is probably going to be getting MVP votes, and so. It's just it's just so funny how reactionary. Well, not only even that, but put Julio to the side. Again, one game out of not the wild card, but the ALS now. Yeah. It's like you are like this series coming up against the Royals. Yeah, you're ahead of the Astros now. Yeah, you're ahead of the Astros. You're one game behind the Rangers who are just drowning now. Like I don't oh, maybe not drowning, but they're starting to kind of fall they're apart. Yeah. They just had to have a big team meeting the other day to kind of like, hey, what's going on here? Yeah. Like, we've added these extra pieces here in the trade deadline. Like, we should be better, and yet they're starting to kind of collapse a little. Baseball is a marathon, and I don't think that fans completely understand that, that, like, things change just like this. And it happens, like, the Mariners are doing this at the right time. And we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast when baseball was starting, was that a lot of good teams that you see, they don't always, like, start off hot in the beginning of the year. The teams that start off hot in the beginning of the year usually kind of you know, they fizzle out. It's the good teams that they get hot at this time right now. And that's what the Mariners are doing. They're showing that they are a very good team. And as Luke said before, too, this is not a team that anyone wants to see in the playoffs. Like they don't want to go against the Mariners and during the playoffs, especially with that pitching staff. But also with, you know, the guys that you have on your team, when they start hitting and get hot, they stay hot, and you can see the results. And they can come. They can come into any situation and change the game. It doesn't matter if it's the ninth inning and you're down by three, just like the other day. You still lost that game, but you are never completely out of it. You don't feel like it's just like oh, I'm shutting it off. Like you're actually like you're staying closer to the TV because you're like something's going to happen. Yeah, especially here. with the Mariners, you assume it's going to happen. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> with the Mariners, like, the Mariners are like 
it's ninth inning and you're down, something's happening. Think about that the playoff game last year with the Blue Jays. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure some people would shut off the TV, but like, how many runs were they down by at that time? Like seven. Like, was yeah. It eight to one or something like that. Yeah, and they come back and they not only did they win, they swept that entire series. Yeah. It's just like the, that's what the Mariners can do, and they got the squad. They have a team that's built to win in the playoffs, and I I have all the confidence in the world. And I think we've maintained this confidence throughout the whole season. I think at one point we were starting to get a little shaky, and it was in a. Uh, series against the Blue Jays, and we emphasize that this is an important series right now. This could really change things. And they came out and they took care of business, and it seems like even from that point on, they've really been kind of becoming a hot team and a team to watch out for. Even weeks after that, though, I feel like they were still 500. You know, this this streak has really been, been wild. Is it now they've won? Well, maybe, they've had two, two eight-game game winning streaks, yeah. correct? Yeah, they've had a crazy That's, August. Yeah. And I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but building off what you were saying before is that uh, I remember saying this on the podcast before when we were talking about the Mariners when they were kind of scuffling a little bit, is that I said it on the podcast is like, the Rangers, they're great right now. They're going to come back to reality. And the Mariners are, are the Mariners are built for summer baseball. Everybody hits come summertime. Not everybody right? can pitch, though. Not everybody can pitch. And the Mariners can pitch. And, like, the Mariners' bats have been hot. That is to be expected, I think. I think most teams expect to be better at hitting through the summer months. It's just kind of how baseball goes. But your pitching wears down. And I'm not watching a lot of Texas Rangers games, so I can't say this from, like, direct knowledge. But I know that they were out-punching. For the beginning of the year, they're a great hitting team, and they were getting away with it, and now you're seeing kind of a correction to the median, and the Mariners are getting better because we have this pitching depth that can put us in games no matter who we play. And now the bats have caught up a little bit, and that's how you get two eight-game win streaks in one month. And meanwhile, you're seeing all these other teams that are kind of just starting to crumble down because even if their bats are okay, their pitching is just falling by the by the wayside. And that's why the Mariners are the team that you don't want to see in the playoffs if they can get there because pitching is the backbone of this team. Yeah. Right now, I, I heard this on the radio this morning that the Mariners are second by like two one hundredths in team ERA. They're 11th in major league in total runs scored offensively. So like... That's right where you want to be. Exactly. It's like if you if you sign... If at the beginning of the season, you told me that... I could sign up for the Mariners being, let's say they get into the top 10. Top 10 in offense and top three in pitching for the season. And Best pitching, top top third of hitting. Yeah. That's like, where you want to live. It's like, if you if you can be there, I, I would say most teams would uh, would say they would take that and think that they're a World Series contender. There's still a lot of baseball left, a lot of games to be played, a lot of division games to be played that are going to be huge coming down the stretch here. I, we play the Strohs in Texas multiple times coming down the stretch. So, a lot of big games left to play. In, uh, Which, September. so far, we've had their number, too. That's yeah. a huge positive. That's yeah. a huge... Good, yeah, we've already clinched the uh, clinched the tiebreak against Houston. If we tie... Even if we get swept? Even if... Yeah, we've already clinched the tiebreak against Houston for the, uh, for the year. So, there's no... Uh, if we ended up tied with them, you know, we, we can't lose to them. On that, so it's it's going to come down to Texas, though. 
I think, at the end of the day. And that's our final. It's a four-game series. Is against Texas to end the season. So, buckle up. <laughs> it's going to be uh, it's gonna be fun. Let's go take the West. And the crazy thing, too, is that, that like you said, Tanner, we're one game back. We're recording this on Thursday night of this week. By Sunday afternoon, the Mariners could be leading the West. Just a few weeks ago, even, that seemed not possible. And here we are sitting, the Mariners, very well, because you've got games against Kansas that you'd like to think we'd, we'd take care of business. Well, then after that, you got Oakland, too. Yeah, and you got Oakland after that. But, like, by the end of this weekend, the Mariners could be sitting at the top of the West. We're hitting the uh, hour 30 mark right now, so we got to kind of – I want to keep talking about baseball, but we should probably wrap this up. But I think we have to mention Otani – with his uh, most recent injury, what was your guys' initial reaction to that? Well, I think you already know my initial reaction. That <laughs> you called it. <laughs> yeah, because I said this when uh, Shane was subbing in that uh, I still think he should be a priority for the Mariners. And I said this before, but I think if you're the Mariners, you would have you sold to him in the offseason that, like, we don't need you to be a pitcher. We need you to be a bat. And I would have some trepidation to hand out a huge contract for him for that exact reason is that like the guy is going to get hurt. Unfortunately for him, it came a lot sooner than I think any angels fan, but definitely, or even any baseball fan was hoping for, especially because the angels are basically dog shit now. And so they weren't, they weren't going to contend. Talk about spiraling. Yeah. They weren't going to contend with the Mariners. So like at the very least, you know, let's see what Otani can do and see what kind of, you know, single season he can put up. I, I, I thought it before, and I think it even more now, that it's like the Mariners should be in a uh, prime position to sign him because that should have always been the pitch to him. We, we'll pay you the big money to be a bat. And if you can pitch on the side a little bit, whether that's as a starter or as a relief pitcher, then that's just gravy. Yeah. We need your bat, though. Yeah. We have pitching. The Mariners, in particular, are in kind of a cherried situation for that. Not only, not only do we like absolutely need a bat, we absolutely don't really need a, a, an arm, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's um, when Ray comes back next year, you're gonna have you're gonna have seven guys fighting for five jobs, or eight guys fighting for five jobs without Otani as part of that on the starting rotation. And I don't think Otani's going to be starting next year, but you've already got a pretty loaded room there. So what a what an easy pitch for him to say, we're not even expecting you to have to come out here and think about pitching next year at any point. You know, whenever you're healthy, you've got a spot where you want it, but we don't we don't need you. Just come come be a bat for us and come be still the best hitter in baseball. Yeah, so, I'd, I'd be I'd be curious where his head is at moving forward with his pitching. This isn't his first Tommy John surgery; he got one already like five years ago. Yeah, so I'd be curious where his mindset is as a pitcher as a pitcher moving forward. Because I would like to think that yeah, I, that would be the best path for him. Is like, hey, you're basically just a bat moving forward, but we can also, if you still want to pitch, we have a role for you in the bullpen. But I'm curious if he's like, no, I want to go somewhere where I'm going to have to rehab, but like when I come back, I still want to be an ace. Maybe the Mariners can still entertain that idea, but I would think that if I'm a GM, be like, I'm not paying you money to come here and be 
the player that you were this last year. I'm not paying you money to be an ace and a bat. I'm paying you to be a bat, and I'll overpay for it because you might be able to do something more. Well, I think regardless, that's going to be the situation now. It's it's unfortunate for him. I would have it would have been interesting, and it would have been. It, I think it may. It, makes the Mariners even more in play now that he's gotten hurt secretly. Maybe that's a, a good thing for the Mariners because paying what I think he was going to be paid in the $700, $800 million range, like what was kind of getting floated, is tough on the Mariners' budget, I'm sure. Not that I care. It's not my money, but that's one of those that's hard to swallow for an owner, I'm guessing, especially with the, the risk involved with that. that you know we're seeing right now at the four to five hundred million dollar range and you're getting the best bat in baseball and a guy who has the potential to pitch still too at a high level i think that's well worth it i agree like i said i'm more curious where his mindset is at yeah because well, his might mindset still... is that he wants to come back and be a be a starter than then go for it because he's already pro- proven that he can still hit when he's had these injuries he still goes out there and hits. He hit a dinger today. He hit a dinger today, a day after his, a day after he found out that he, he tore his UCL muscle. I think that he still has the ability to hit even even with this injury. We'll see where he stands on it. I'm guessing he's going to want to continue to pitch. It would be my guess. And probably still want to continue to start. Probably not next year. I would think the year after that. He's going to be 30 next year, I think. Age 31. He's probably thinking he's got another two or three years of starter left in him after that, I would guess. And modern medicine, he probably does. He had one surgery. It didn't really affect his ability to pitch well. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of guys who have come back from two Tommy John surgeries, though. But there weren't. Yeah. There haven't been a lot of guys that <laughs> there haven't been a lot of guys hit that, the way that he does yeah. and pitch the way he does. So yeah. I won't. I won't. He's built different. Yeah, I won't discount anything. Like he's done a lot of things that no one else has done before. So I'm not gonna say that just because nobody else has really come back and been effective that he can't. But I think a lot of GMs are gonna look through that lens though now and say like you're not a real pitcher moving forward. Yeah. So maybe it is the Mariners' opportunity to be like we'll still pay you somewhere in between. I think you. I think you now. Judge got almost four hundred million dollars. I think there's your big bat. For a comparison, like two of the best. Did you bats. see the game he had yesterday? <laughs> I I heard about it. That he oh had my big, god! Big game. <laughs> yeah, they needed it. <laughs> yeah, but that's so what it takes for the Yankees. Was it to three win. home runs yesterday? He had, and that's one of them was a grand slam. That's a big day at the office. And they had another home run today. His first at bat too. I was shocked to hear that that's the first three home run game he's had in his career. Yeah, just because he's had just because he's had so many home runs. But I think now at this point, the price for Otani. Is going to be, we'll say, $500 million over 10 years. And Judge, who's the next best hitter in baseball, got four. So you pay an extra $100 million with the upside that maybe you're getting a third or fourth guy in your rotation or a really good relief pitcher as well as, a, as, well as one of the best bats in baseball. I think he's got plenty of time to have a good bat still, too. Those guys seem to only get better with age, a lot of them. The like real superstar bats, you know. So I think it's well worth the money. He takes a big hit, a couple hundred billion dollar hit haircut off that, but the dude's still gonna get paid just fine. All right, let's go ahead and end the uh, show on one more segment of fantasy football. We just had our fantasy football draft. It was super lame. We usually do it in person. 
but our commissioner, uh, Shane, uh, is really slacking this year and wasn't able to rally the troops together to have an in-person draft, and instead we had to do a lame online draft. One, one positive point of the of the draft process, though, the the pick order selection, I, I thought that was kind of fun with the, uh, the rubber duck race. A virtual rubber, rubber duck race. A 24-hour virtual duck race. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah next year. <laughs> you know you know what was my real disappointment of doing the online draft as opposed to the in-person draft? Anybody else out there who does a live draft with people? Is that my favorite part of drafting is when somebody, I don't want to name names, Mike, Teo, <laughs> uh, Al, uh, maybe not Al, maybe that's uh, shrapnel on that one but drafting somebody who was drafted like three rounds prior like has anybody taken josh jacobs it's the seventh round (laughs) that's that's my favorite part of every draft and obviously you can't get that in the online draft but other than that i mean i guess you know it it is what it is i uh pointed that out I said that same thing in our tech group text thread. Can't wait. You're missing or hate to miss out on asking if Justin Jefferson's been picked in the eighth round. He's <laughs> the number one overall pick. Oh, I forgot to cross him off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love that, though. It really, it really grounds you as a fantasy football GM. <laughs> when, when somebody throws an asinine... Uh, my, attempt at a draft pick out there. My my other thing that I really missed out on was, uh, or missed by not having the in-person draft, is that uh, every time someone takes someone that you were really hoping mm. to get and yelling out how horrible of a pick that was, when in reality it was the person that you wanted, uh, that's also something that, that I missed. Horrible pick! Alright, do better next year, Shane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Shane, do better. So, Luke, tell me why your first overall pick was Jake Bobo and the rest of your team is all rookies. <laughs> Go ahead and break, break down that strategy for us. Yeah, I went rookie heavy this year, and I figured Bobo, if I didn't get him at the third overall, then, <laughs> then I was <laughs> never no going to get him. I, I was going to get him on the way back, no doubt. Yeah, no, see, that's why I had to stop you from it. Uh, no, actually, Jamar Chase was uh, my first pick. Easy to confuse with Jake Bobo. They both have elite, elite. athleticism, uh, great hands, <laughs> and just a natural ability to get open. So I can see why you would think that it was Bobo that I took third overall. Yeah, pretty Jamar easy Chase. mistake. Yeah. Let's break it down a little bit. So what was your draft strategy going into this season? Really, because you did go rookie heavy. What was kind of your thoughts going into it? It was to fuck me at every possible point that he could every person that i said on this podcast that were uh people that i really liked as rookies luke decided to pick them as his picks right before i was uh, coming out oopsie <laughs> yeah so that was his strategy in case you were curious um yeah that's a good way to put it nigel does get to a good point is that i do think this is kind of one of the fun things about fantasy football and why i do like the live draft way more because i love the reaction but at least the three of us were in the same room while we drafted, so I I was able to get a lot of the reaction. But sometimes when you draft is that the biggest determining factor on who you're going to draft is knowing what the person that's like next to you wants. So I definitely reached on a lot of my picks this year, and a big part of that is that Nigel was the second overall pick and I was the third. At least, you know, snake order when you come back down like in the second round, basically any even-numbered round, I have one pick. Nigel has two picks before I pick again. In this case, Teo 
had two picks, obviously, as the number one overall pick in a row. But You like, weren't too worried about that. Yeah, I'm not too worried about what Teo's picking. He could have Kirk Cousins in the eighth round or whatever he picked him. <laughs> but, but, uh, but Nigel's right there. He's the pick after me, and then he has another pick. So sometimes you have to reach. One, one thing uh, I'll say, and I think I told you this before, Tanner, but I'll give credit to you now on the podcast, is that uh, we'll, we'll see if my team's any good, because I'll definitely be blaming you later if it's not good. <laughs> but I do think that this year I went a lot more. There, there was two, two tenets to what I wanted to do when I drafted. And in years past, I've been very much on the, I'm not going to draft a quarterback. You can find them anywhere and stream them or find somebody off the waiver wire, especially in our league where quarterback points are not juiced up compared to other leagues that I play in. But this year I was like, nope, I just haven't been consistent at the position. I want a top-tier quarterback. I got Lamar Jackson. You know, I was hoping that I could get, like, Josh Allen. He got picked pretty high, so I wasn't too worried about that. But So I wanted to get a quarterback that... In my mind, I don't have to worry about, and I feel like I got that with Lamar. The other one, which is really what you said, Tanner, which I agree with, is that you just got to kind of go with your gut a lot more. Like in years past, I've gone a lot more with like, this guy is the highest rated player here for the position that I need or is close to the highest rated player. I'm going to go with him. I took a lot more flyers this year on guys that I just believe in including with my second pick, which was Jameer Gibbs. Third overall pick, so back end of the second round. So it ended up being a lot of rookies this year, uh, including Jackson Smith and Jigba, Dalton Kincaid. A lot of rookies that, honestly, I feel very confident about. Zach Charbonnet. I, I do believe in Charbonnet. That also has sleeper implications, but just like any of these rookie picks, is that I think you set yourself up for a nice keeper pick. Uh, in the future, but I'm worried about my team because I love it so much. And usually the years that I love all of my picks and I like my team a lot are the years that I'm really bad and the years that I'm like, man, my team sucks. Why did I pick any of these guys are the years that I'm good. We'll see. Yeah, and somehow I decided to swap places with you this year and I ended up with CMC and Debo. So (laughs) (laughs) So trading places. Hey, last year I was like in 10th place and then Christian McCaffrey got hot once he settled in with the 49ers, and I rocketed up to the fifth seed and then had a stinker of a playoff game. But my team was great towards the end of the year, so I wouldn't be too upset about having Debo and Christian McCaffrey on your team. But anyways, continue. Don't worry. Yeah, I'm not too upset about that either. My, I mean, I won't get into the real specifics of my team outside of that, other than I'll just say that I was upset with all of Luke's uh, stealing of my, my guys, and so I made a spite pick, and... You all know that Luke's been uh, championing AR-15 for quite some time. So I made sure to go pick AR-15 just to spite Luke since we were in the same room and having the having a little battle there. I definitely so, had my eyes on drafting him later, mostly as a keeper potential. Yeah. But I made sure that that wouldn't happen. So I got my spite pick in there, ended up with a couple of couple of young guys on top of that that... Uh, I think are are going to be studs. I'll only point to one of them since he's the uh, he's the number one guy. I think is gonna gonna pop off here, and that's Jalen Hyatt, Tennessee uh, wide receiver that's playing for or he's University of Tennessee. He's playing for the Giants. That's my pick to click. That's gonna gonna be popping off. 
already recorded the fastest time in the NFL this year in practice. I think he's gonna I think he's gonna be a superstar coming up here down the line. Be my next be my next keeper. Yeah, and you'll remember you're welcome that I let you have him because I said it right before my pick <laughs> that I knew that you wanted him, but I let you have him, so so, from what I understand, what I was hearing uh, before we started recording is that I got a little criticism from a particular individual about my team. So, I haven't really heard these critiques too much yet. So, I think a fun little thing we could do is that I can be on trial here and we can go through some of my picks and look through my team. Maybe I can stand trial for some of these picks that I made and explain myself and my process through it. Well, first off, you have a silly name. Boot. Boom her bust? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it either. It just sounded super badass. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I get it, and it is badass. <laughs> yeah. Luke gets it because he helped me made it, make yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Not as good as not as good as stap infection. Thank you, Max Patel, yeah. for that one. Uh, but... Or meching on that bootay. Right, come on. <laughs> anyway, I'll uh, I'll be the first one here to to uh, start the grilling. Who's going to throw the ball to uh, Drake London and Christian Watson, your starting wide receivers? Well. Because you have a rookie, two rookie quarterbacks there. He's got both of the quarterbacks that are throwing. <laughs> yeah. oh, wait, oh, wait, no, never no, mind. No, no, sorry, no, sorry, no, sorry, no, sorry, no, sorry. Yeah. He's got one of the quarterbacks <laughs> that is. So who's going to be who's gonna be throwing the ball to those two guys? Well, I think the thing is with Christian Watson, first off, I believe in Jordan Love. I picked him as the very last pick of the draft, thinking that could be a potential keeper for next year. I think Green Bay, notoriously, they've had two big-name quarterbacks as their last two quarterbacks, and I think that Green Bay knows how to bring in a quality quarterback, and I think that there's something there with Jordan Love. Every year you see a player that comes out in fantasy football that's like, oh, shit, like that would have been a great guy to get later in the rounds, or maybe I should have picked him off of the waiver, and he ends up just blowing up and being that big-name dude. And I think Jordan Love could be that, which that leads into Christian Watson is going to be his number one wide receiver. The other factor to that as well is that I went running running <clears throat> excuse me, running back heavy within the first couple rounds, and I also picked up Travis Kelsey in the first round, which is basically a wide receiver one. So that does factor into it as well. It's not like I just have some scrub at tight end too. So in a sense, if these two guys work out, you're looking at a three wide receivers that could all potentially have wide receiver one numbers. Even wide receiver two numbers would probably do the job for me. And as far as Drake London, gets a big target share. That's the biggest thing that you see with him. He's a big talent, second year into the league. He does have a rookie quarterback. We'll see what happens, but he's going to have to rely on someone. Second year. Oh, second year, excuse me. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a he's first, first year, year starter. starter. First yeah. year starter. First yeah. year starter. Might as well be a rookie. Yeah, I mean both of them I'm might as well be rookies because they're really this is gonna be their first time leading yeah. the pack. But Drake London, someone's gonna have to be the guy. And that guy's gonna be Drake London for the Falcons. The only other dude you have is Kyle Pitts, but even then, I mean I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but when I was reading into going into my pre draft strategy brain you know, looking into the numbers, he got like some kind of crazy, like 40% of the targets after Kyle Pitts left. Like he was getting a lot of the share and now he has a year under his belt. Second year guys, that can be a boomer bust. Hence the name boom Hauer or bust. Ah, now I get it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a pun. That's a pun. I don't know who boom Hauer is, but it's a pretty cool name. <laughs> Again, this team is based off of what could be. And if you look at my bench, let's scroll down the bench real quick. Jamon Dotson. 
Again, another one of those dudes, second-year guy. I say, I like Jahan Dotson a lot. Started off really hot last year. I think he had a a small injury that kind of set him back. You still have Scary Terry to compete with, but I think he could easily overtake that wide receiver one spot. All these guys, one of the biggest questions is going to be quarterback. But as we've seen every year in the NFL, someone takes off. And a lot of the times, like people get hyped up about having like the first overall pick in fantasy. Look at that's one of my going to be another critique of mine is Jonathan Taylor. I picked him up, but like last year, first overall pick in majority of drafts ends up being a big bust. Christian McCaffrey has been that victim too, not so much for ability. And same with Jonathan Taylor, it wasn't really ability; it's more of injury. But every there's going to be someone new every year that takes off. My team is full of potential guys that could end up being that. You also have Elijah Moore in there. I think that there's something to be said that that's another one of those guys going oh, to the Browns. Coming with Deshaun Watson, who's going to, you know, Deshaun Watson's going to ball out most likely. He's still a good football player. I mean, he's a weird dude that likes to, like, you know, jump around the massage parlors. But Sky Moore, best offense in the NFL. I like Sky Less. Sky Less. <laughs> and then Nico Collins, same thing. Another guy. Kind of a, a potential talent there with a quarterback with C.J. Stroud that's going to need someone to throw to. So it's a it's not just a Drake London or Christian Watson. It's a whole list of those guys that they're all kind of the same player that my thought is one of them's going to explode. At least one, if not two. And then you got Travis Kelsey, who's basically a wide receiver one. So suck it, Maddie. Next question. <laughs> uh, hold on. Are we buying or selling that? <laughs> Sell. <laughs> Do you have a question or do you want me to go with another one? Because I got one queued up here. Oh, I I was just going to weigh in on that. I will timidly buy. I do think you're on to something with the Jordan Love, Christian Watson thing. I actually think I'd buy that more than Drake London. Even though Drake London, in my opinion, is a better receiver than Christian Watson. I would think that Jordan Love is going to come into this season and he might be one of those guys that really is that sleeper type of player that hits the ground running and Christian Watson's a guy I do think you have a lot of merit to the fact that you don't have really any receiver outside of Travis Kelsey that is like a bona fide one you know Nigel and I were at the top of the draft Jamar I have Jamar Chase you have oh no you have have Christian you have Christian McCaffrey I have Garrett Wilson who's my keeper you have Garrett Wilson who's your keeper I have Almond Ra these guys are all number ones on paper. You have a bunch of guys that kind of fall into that number two, but if they pop off, they could be number one, and you have a lot of them. You have depth, so, so I'll buy it. But you might have some weeks where there's some growing pains with it because it might take it might take half a season for some of these guys to really establish themselves. Can you win a game in the first quarter? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe so. <laughs> I'm a Christian Watson lover. I drafted him last year and was hoping to keep him, so I'm with you there. I'm also a Desmond Ritter hater, so Drake London I'm not as, as keen on. So I'll buy and sell on you. How do you plan on winning any games with the most talentless Ohio State quarterback to come out of the university in the last 20 years? So last year we saw our guy Justin Fields go out there and run the ball over the map. Like He's a runner. We know that. But... The big thing that he's lacked through the last few years or the last couple of years has been an offensive line and having any kind of wide receiver help. This year, he's gotten it. He's got a little, I don't know exactly who it is, but I know they've made additions to the offensive line and they added DJ Moore, which has given him a weapon. 
So you add on the fact that he can run, and now he has a little bit more protection, and he has someone to throw the ball to. And heck, maybe they take a Jonathan Taylor and sign him onto the team, and you add a little bit of depth to your running back room as well. Chicago Bears could be a good football team this year. Not saying they're going to be great, but they could be good enough to add fantasy points. I was tempted in that round to take Lamar Jackson instead of Justin Fields. My fear with Lamar is injuries. I probably would have rather had Lamar, which Luke ended up getting. And maybe it bites me in the ass. But my biggest scare with him is that, is he going to make it the whole season? My biggest concern with Justin Fields, and I told you this after the draft, again, it's kind of the theme of your team. Low floor, high ceiling. Is that I could see Justin Fields being one of the highest scoring fantasy quarterbacks this year. I could also see him getting benched after like week five because I think that's just where the Bears are at with their team. If he doesn't look like the guy that they are ready to commit their future to, they might just bench him. End of sentence. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where Jordan Love comes in. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think that that was a smart pick because I think, I think Jordan Love might actually have the potential to be a high, higher scoring quarterback in weeks nine through 18 but we'll see i think i I think the biggest thing in order to appreciate the team that i drafted you gotta understand what the strategy was behind it and it was the idea because if you play fantasy football long enough you tend i at least i i try to switch things up in my draft strategy sometimes i try to go wide receiver strong sometimes i go try to go running back strong some you know i have a different kind of mindset going into it i usually try to draft younger guys because those are usually the guys that you're like well shit that i that would have been more valuable to get someone like that than a guy that was doing this you know he was doing that one or two years ago and i'm still trying to bank off of him getting those same results he was doing a couple years back because the nfl is always moving forward there's always going to be a new stud that comes in a new guy that's just blowing up fantasy numbers and i think jalen hurts is an example of that that was a guy that was kind of almost getting written off. He was almost going to be traded to the Seahawks at one point for Russell Wilson. And in that same Fields, Justin Fields territory <laughs> is like, if he doesn't come out hot this year, they might bench him and move on and look for somebody else. Yeah. And then he was an MVP front runner. Yeah. And I mean, with this year's strategy, it was try to get a team that could get ahead of the game, get ahead of it as far as like, get these guys now before they take off. But with that said, you got to have depth to do that because you have you can't just bank on Christian Watson's going to do it and just leave it at that. You got to be able to build depth, and that's why I went wide receiver strong. I only have one running back and one quarterback. Those are my two bench guys that aren't wide receiver. The rest are wide receivers because I'm banking on the fact that I got the best tight end in the game. Jonathan Taylor is probably going to be another critique of mine that I have, but I have no worries about him playing. He's going to be playing for someone, which I think most likely would be the Colts. And then I got um, Stevenson and Cam Akers. I feel pretty good about those running backs. That's probably pretty strong, especially when I had Stevenson. I got him in the uh, 7th or 8th round because he was my keeper. The guy's normally in most leagues going in at the end of the 2nd round, early 3rd round. So that's a good keeper in my opinion. But with that said, to appreciate this team, you got to understand what the strategy is. You're going all in on the fact that these guys explode and you'll also go down with the ship that like, you know, it may not work out, but I wasn't looking to draft a team that was just trying to base, trying to draft based off of what they did a year ago or what they did two seasons ago. Looking ahead of the game. Visionary is what I would say I am. 
Hey, I did the same like thing. Steve Jobs. That's why. I, <laughs> that's why I drafted rookies. Is that I'm projecting what they're going to do. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Luke went the same direction, and we've seen in our league that that's paid off for a lot of people. Usually, the team that ends up doing well is the guys that drafted young players, or they were really good at the waiver wire, and they were able to see the talent, you know, before they just like went off the charts as far as like in other leagues. One last question here. You already stated that you think that Jonathan Taylor is most likely going to still be a Colt. But if it were up to you, would you prefer to see him stay on the Colts? Or would you prefer to see him be traded? And if the answer is traded, which team would be your preference between, I'm going to give you the top four odds teams as it stands here, between Miami Dolphins, Minnesota Vikings, Washington Commanders, and Cincinnati Bengals? Yeah, I, I like the idea of him just staying with the Colts, to be honest. They have an improvement with Anthony Richardson coming into the game. And I think that the big thing, this is going to kind of be a short answer, but I think something with Anthony Richardson, he's going to spread the ball around, I believe. But he can also run the ball. So when you have these, you know, run-pass option plays, you're not really sure if it adds variety to it. Richardson can take off at any point, or he can be handing the ball off to uh, Jonathan Taylor. And then, like, you have to be aware that Richardson can take off. Like, you can't just play that lightheartedly. And so it, it just expands more weapons, expands the game. And I think Jonathan Taylor's probably, fantasy-wise, in a better spot sticking there. So I choose stay with the Colts. Secondary, uh, I don't know. Throw them with the Dolphins. Why not? There's, there's really not a whole Vikings. lot of Kings. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I didn't realize if, if the Vikings, if the Vikings are in the mix, I'd say if I'm Jonathan Taylor or I'm a Jonathan Taylor fantasy football owner, Vikings. You saw what Dalvin Cook has done on that team. I feel like he slides right into that, and he is. One of the highest scoring players in fantasy I football. I heard this one today too. Joe Mixon in a first round pick for Jonathan Taylor. No, that's not going to happen. It seems like no, no teams. Overset. I feel like the consensus has been that they want a first round pick for Jonathan Taylor and they're not going to get I guess it. Jo- Joe Mixon in a pick. A first round pick. Might yeah, it'll be probably it. be like a fifth or sixth or seventh round because didn't McCaffrey go to the 49ers for a second and a fourth? Maybe it was a third? I don't yeah, know. I can't remember. I need some research on that. But, affordable. But even Christian McCaffrey didn't even didn't even garner a first-round pick. Now, granted, I think Taylor's less less injuries and younger when he, when he is in the trade market because McCaffrey had already gotten a contract by the time he was traded. Yeah. And had already had back-to-back mm-hmm. years, basically. With injuries. But... Still, that's the state of the running back market right now. Is that like you ain't getting a first round pick? Yeah, first. I round, think that's what the first Colts round want. Been a... We can we can close this out, but I want to say one more thing for my team in regards to Cam Akers. Let me ask you guys this: Do you guys think the Rams are going to be bad this year? Do I you think, think they're, they're going to be as bad as they were last year? No, but I think they are. I think they're probably a five hundred team if everybody stays healthy. So it's an improved team, right? And an improved quarterback. I think they're I think they're one injury away from being just as bad as they were last year, though. And that injury could be Matt Stafford, Cooper Cup, or it could be Aaron Donald. All guys that have had injuries recently that I think if any one of those guys is hurt, they're probably just about as bad as they were last. Because they, they've just been bled dry from 
cap casualties and having to get rid of everybody that they have zero depth and not that much talent outside of top end talent. If Stafford gets hurt, that team is probably the worst team in football. If Cooper Cup gets hurt, they're probably the second worst team in football. <laughs> if Aaron Donald gets hurt, they're probably the fourth worst team in football. That's where I feel about the Rams. If they all stay healthy, they could have a good year. Okay. So let's just say they have a mediocre year. So let's add in that fact. So then let's also add the fact that who do they have in the running back room now that's really competition for Cam Akers against Cam Akers? That's a great question. I don't know. Exactly. There isn't really any. Did you know that they also have... I did did not. (laughs) They have the, the Rams and Cam Akers himself, okay, has the third easiest running back schedule, like the third easiest schedule for a running back this season compared to all other fantasy players. I'm gonna I'm gonna clap back on that real quick only because like this is the nature of the NFL. That's is yeah, it, that's based off of last year. That's based off of last year. You Teams change it's just like it's just like with the playoffs. It's like every the, the, the Seahawks were the worst rush defense in the NFL last year, one of, and I think they could very well be one of the best this year. Well I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, but I don't I mean I'm not saying hundred percent, but like you've brought in a linebacker that would say that that's going to change. You brought in interior D linemen that say that's going to change. They're not the worst, but they let's say they're middle. They're fifteen out of thirty-two teams. Like I agree. Every, yeah. every year, every year, that's basically in the a NFL, lot, that's probably greatly driven by the fact that the Rams played the Seahawks twice, who had the worst running running defense in the NFL last year, or top five worst. Every year, there's you know this is like the the whole thing about the NFL and why they have such great parity. Every year there's a team that made the playoffs the year before that doesn't, and there's a team that didn't make the playoffs that does make the playoffs. And that just really speaks to the fact that these teams are not the same year to year. So I don't know if I buy that statistic. <laughs> that being that said, I still, think the... Cam, I still think Cam's going to put up numbers. Okay. So I'm arguing with you, but I, I don't disagree with you. That's fine. You can disagree with that point. The last thing I'll say to my last point leading into why Cam Akers is going to be a good fantasy player as long as he stays healthy, as long as, as long as things go pretty good for him, is that he also led the NFL in rushing over the last six games of the season. It's going yes. against what I said so earlier. So did Penny the year before. Again, boomer bust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> boomer bust. Remember who took Rashad Penny last year? That was me. <laughs> <laughs> he ranked RB four in half point PPR or uh, half point PPR, which we are now, and he was RB four for that stretch too. He had more than a hundred rushing yards in each of his last three games, and he's two years removed from that Achilles injury. Overall, where I got him in the fifth round, I think. Feel good about that pick. If you can get any running back in the fifth round is never a guarantee, but if you can find that guy in the fifth round and he ends up being a stud, at least for some of your season to carry your team just to get you enough wins to make it to the playoffs and then you figure it out in the waiver wire, it's still a good pickup in that in that time frame. So overall, my argument, I feel good about this team. It could be a disaster or it could be it could be a championship winner too. If everything could go, if majority of those players can hit a higher ceiling, I think that there's a potential of this team being a championship caliber team. I do buy your Cam Akers stuff for all of the flack I was giving you before. I do buy Cam Akers because he is a talented player. I think my bigger concern for him falls in the same camp I was saying before. I'd be worried that 
the Rams, if they have some nicks and bruises, if they're behind in games, he won't be getting the ball. That would be my biggest concern with him. I'm not concerned about his talent. I'm not concerned about his ability to be a productive player. If he can get his 18 to 25 carries and a handful of targets, I'm not worried about that. If that's the script that plays out, I'd be more worried as a Cam Akers fantasy owner that they'll find themselves behind in games a lot, which is why I'd like to have Cooper Cup on my team. For what it's worth, Tim, you're projected by Yahoo to go 7-7 seven and seven and be uh, sixth place in the league, and I'm projected to go 1-13. for 13 <laughs> That and, That is always the funniest thing. Is And that's with my starters being Trevor Lawrence, Christian McCaffrey, Joe Mixon, Debo, Keenan Allen, Garrett Wilson, and Alexander Madison in my flex. So you're still projected to have a better season than me, despite all of this hate. I can't believe that you're projected you. to go one. In, you said one in thirteen or one in eleven. I'm projected for one win. So whatever that. Yeah, is. whatever. Yeah, whatever yeah. it is, I'm projected for. One I win. swear, the two years I've won the league. <laughs> Both those years, my projection was exactly that, Nigel, where it's like, <laughs> oh, you're going to be garbage. Yeah. So, like, the guy that was picked number two, be number two overall with a 12-2 and two record, the guy that drafted Kirk Cousins in the eighth round, I'm not buying that. I don't see that guy being a 12-2 and two team. So these, <laughs> these projections are all based off of, said this before, like about scouting for the NFL draft. It's the same thing. It's where they have decided that these people should be drafted and how closely you draft to their order determines what is a good draft. Yeah. And Teo is projected that way because he drafted Kirk Cousins in the eighth round, which is a god-awful pick. I hope you're listening, Teo. <laughs> that guy would have been undrafted. You could have picked him up off of the waiver wire. No. I'm, or sorry. I was getting him on the way back. Sorry. You could have picked him up. Not on the waiver wire. And then he also drafted Geno Smith in like the last round. Another guy that you could have picked up from free agency. But their position relative to their average draft position across of across all Yahoo leagues and their projected points makes them a great pick. And that's why I feel like you get a good grade for that. Is that it's like, oh, you drafted a guy who's projected to score over 200 points. That's a great pick. In the eighth round, you got that guy's like, he's a shitty quarterback that nobody would have picked. Yeah. That's not a good pick. It's not a good pick at all. <laughs> what? That's a free agent. <laughs> Same with Geno Smith. That, that one was, I don't know which one was more perplexing from Tao, but he won the league last year, so I guess I got I should be I should yeah. be taking notes. Yeah. Alright. You guys got anything else? Guilty, Tanner. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully my fantasy team is good this year. I took a lot of uh, flyers this year, so I hope you all lose and I I win. That's it. Insightful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope I win. Yeah. yeah. I hope I win more than one game. Yeah, exactly. As, yeah. As soon as I get the two you know, wins, you know. I'm, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, throw it all in all your faces. I was gonna say, Nigel. Uh, yeah. You guys didn't believe in me. Yeah. Okay? Exactly. Yeah. You should. You should scream. Yeah, the guy who's been in the the playoffs. In the uh, top three in the last couple of years, no one believed in me. Okay? You should screenshot that one and whatever uh, projected record so that you can really give the uh, 
Georgia Bulldogs response <laughs> yeah. when when you win when you win the league and be like nobody believed in me yeah. nobody <laughs> believed in me everybody said that we were going to be seven and seven it's like nobody nobody yeah. said that except for Yahoo <laughs> and then post it on your post it on your Twitter one and thirteen yeah. and here I am I now. came from the mud <laughs> <laughs> I'm a frogman <laughs> frogman's love all right Nigel's a frogman see ya. I'm a hot frog.